It's Easter Eve, and both sets of parents are due for lunch the next day. That's eight people at the table, and the only set of eight placemats we had were red and green. I had been scanning ads for something appropriate for the rest of the year to no avail, but I really wanted the table to look nice for Easter. And so I took off for Tanglewood Mall. The brightly striped placemats I found would match the weird color of teal that has been in our dining room since we moved into the house. They were fairly inexpensive and they had napkins to match. What a beautiful table for Easter lunch. For many years, it didn't matter to me where my clothes or food or furniture came from because it didn't seem to affect me. What affected me was how much I paid for it. That affected me. More recently, I have realized the hidden costs of cheap items. When broccoli travels from Southern California to my Kroger, it travels 2,500 miles. That's a lot of fuel. A leather handbag made in Italy not only has to be transported across the Atlantic, but it costs a cow part of its hide. Furniture made overseas under poorer working conditions has cost hundreds of people their livelihoods in Martinsville, an hour away from us. Now Martinsville has the highest unemployment rate in the Commonwealth, 18.8%. Often, the cheapest products are not the best options. And so two and a half months after Easter, I am standing over a hot iron, pressing obnoxious wrinkles out of cheap cotton placemats. The little white tag announces it was made in India and reminds me that I sold out. I let my appetite for something new and pretty override my sensibility. I had again foregone my values for a quick fix. There is a cost to every decision we make. Even before we have Jacob and Esau's altercation, if we want to call it that, we have two twins struggling within their mother's womb. Rebecca learns that they also would struggle outside of her womb, and even so, she and Isaac choose to favor one of their children over the other. Each of them does. We're told that when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man living in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he was fond of game. They liked to go hunting together, I guess. But Rebecca loved Jacob. He must have been the one in the kitchen with her because now we find him working at the pot of stew. And we've all been hungry. And Esau was famished, we're told. He's been working out in the field, and he comes into the the camp, and he says to Jacob, his brother, his 
adversary, as the parents have set them up, not his teammate. Let me eat some of that red stuff. I'm famished. Well, we've, we've all been hungry. We've all wanted something so much that we might do anything to get it, even if it's just a pretty table for an Easter meal. Jacob, as we heard, had come out of the womb holding on to his brother's heel. And so he got the name that means heel or supplanter, the one who supplants, the one who tries to pull his brother back and take that first place. Now we see him living up to his name. You're hungry? Want some stew? Can you see him taking the ladle and kind of waving it in front of his brother's nose? How hungry are you? How badly do you want some stew? I'll sell it to you for your birthright. As Wayne helped us understand, that birthright meant that Esau, as the older twin, was entitled not only to leadership of the family, but to two-thirds of the inheritance, while Jacob would receive only one-third. And so imagine the scales of justice, and you've got the birthright on one side, and you've got a bowl of stew on the other. How equal is that trade? Well, our tendency is to think, what an idiot, Esau. You're selling out. You're compromising your integrity for the sake of some red stew. And who knows? We don't know how Esau felt. But it sort of appears to be a game to him, as if maybe they wouldn't, Jacob wouldn't really follow through, or who knows? But later maybe he could go back on his word. Because he had all the rights, culturally, he was entitled to all the rights of being the older son. And we afford rights to people. Diplomats living and driving around Washington, D.C. have immunity from certain laws that would affect the rest of us. And we sometimes give special privileges to children who behave well. George H.W. Bush once said, It's amazing how many people beat you at golf once you're no longer president. (laughs) He was used to some special privileges. The eldest son was afforded certain rights, perhaps like we think we have the right to the cheapest prices. There's a deeper issue here, though. The spiritual issue is that we have a God who is not bound by our rules. We have societal rules. We have hierarchies. We have entitlements. But God is not bound by those. We see God taking the younger and placing him above the older. Many cultures have this practice of, big word is primogeniture, the man's power being handed down, power and wealth transferred to the eldest son, maybe the eldest child. And We still have this, something similar to it, in the monarchies of Great Britain and Spain. But in Genesis 25, entitlement is turned on its head. 
The culture does not get to choose which son will continue the promise of Abraham becoming the ancestor of a multitude. God chooses. And God chooses not the top dog. And so maybe this is a story not about justice, but about grace. In the coming weeks, we'll examine other events in Jacob's life. We'll see that his close connection with God sometimes creates conflicts, and yet together, Jacob and God succeed. Much later, in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. As we read through the Gospels, we see God, through Jesus, caring for the foolish ones, caring for the weak ones, caring for the lowly ones. And every Christmas, we even remember about Jesus, that he wasn't born in a hospital. He wasn't born with workers, with servants all around him to take care of Mary's needs. He was born in a stable. He was laid in a feeding trough for the livestock. And then later during his ministry, he spent time around prostitutes, around greedy tax collectors, around unclean lepers and women. Most of his followers were not at the top of the social scale. They were at the bottom. Do you want to place yourself on the social scale? No. We wouldn't like to do that. But really, there's no judgment in where we are. The judgment is whether we see ourselves as entitled to be there. Do we deserve all the good that we have? In the Religious Herald, Virginia Baptist's newspaper, Bill Wilson has an article about what the church does with failure. He contends that we aren't friendly enough with failure as the, wait, sorry, um, that we aren't friendly enough with failure that the church of the 21st century often shoots its wounded and treats failure as the unpardonable sin. Bill Wilson has been a pastor in Virginia. He's now the director of the Center for Congregational Health. And so he has a broad view of churches. He sets before us then both Peter and Judas in the last days before Jesus was crucified. Both of them tried to follow Jesus but failed him. And Wilson says, one disciple allows his failure to define him. The other disciple allows his failure to transform him. And then Wilson asks, which will it be for you? Will failure be the last word? Or will it be the beginning of a new and deeper season in your life or the life of your congregation?
Failure tends to take us low. But that's where Jesus is. That's where he meets us and he brings us up. Some of you all have studied books by Max Lucado. I don't think you've done this one. It's called No Wonder They Call Him the Savior. But in that book, he relates a story about a Brazilian girl named Christina and her mother. Christina was young and beautiful and felt stuck in her neighborhood. She wanted to leave. She didn't like having a home with only a pallet on the floor to sleep on, a wash basin, and a wood-burning stove. She dreamt of a better life in the city. And one morning, she broke her mother's heart by leaving. And her mother knew, as mothers do, what life would, on the streets would be like for her young, attractive daughter. And so she packed immediately to go find her. On her way to the bus stop, she went in a drugstore to get one last thing, pictures. She sat in the photograph booth, closed the curtain, and spent all that she could on taking pictures of herself. And so with her purse full of these black and white photos, she boarded the next bus to Rio de Janeiro. She knew that her daughter had no way of earning money, and she also knew that her daughter was too stubborn to give up. And Lakato writes, when pride meets hunger, a human will do things that were before unthinkable. And so Maria takes her pictures and she goes into bars, into hotels, into nightclubs, any place with a reputation for streetwalkers or prostitutes. She left a picture at each place. She taped it on a bathroom mirror, to a hotel bulletin board, to a corner phone booth, and on the back of each picture she wrote a note. It wasn't too long before the money and the pictures ran out and Maria had saved enough to go home, crying on the bus ride back to her village. It was a few weeks later then that Christina, young Christina, descended stairs at a hotel. Her young face was tired, her brown eyes no longer danced with youth but spoke perhaps cried out of pain and fear. Her laughter was broken. Her dream had become a nightmare. A thousand times over, she had longed to trade these countless beds in the city for her secure pallet in the village. Yet that village was in too many ways too far away. She reached the bottom of the stairs, and as she did, she noticed a picture of a familiar face. It was that picture of her mother. Her eyes burned, her throat tightened as she walked across the room and removed that small picture and written on the back was this compelling invitation. Whatever you have done, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. She did. Psalm 119 is the longest psalm and has a complex and brilliant structure in Hebrew. 
It expresses the desire over and over to know God's law. Would you like to hear all 176 verses? Okay. How about eight? As we listen to these, hear the different words for law and let it become your prayer, our prayer, that we attend to God's law and not just to our cheap entitlements. How can young people keep their way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Do not let me stray from your commandments. I treasure your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the ordinances of your mouth. I delight in the way of your decrees as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. God's word, grace. God's ordinances, grace. God's commandments, grace. God's precepts, God's decrees, God's statutes, God's law, grace. By grace, God says to us, whatever you have done, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. Let's pray. Your open arms invite us time and again, O Lord, to come home. Thank you for always being open to us. Thank you for always searching for us and calling us to you. Help us then to be true. Amen.